problem with these spheres occurs when one bubble reaches into another bubble and exerts its authority in the wrong place. You're listening to a sermon series titled Romans, preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Today we return to our study of Romans. It's been a great study as we've gone through verse by verse through this incredible book in God's Word. And the title of today's sermon is God and Government. Oh boy, oh boy. Most of us have been taught that God and government do not go together. In fact, they should never and they will never interact. Separation of church and state. Enter COVID-19. We, for the last two years, have had many elected officials at the federal, state, and local levels make judgments, make decrees, make fiats that lack much legal or even legislative backing. And some Christians have said, well, I I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do because the executive branch is telling me I can't have Thanksgiving with more than five people and we have to bring in our turkey in uh, Tupperware and we can't sit indoors. And because the government said I can't sit indoors, Romans 13, 1 through 7, tells me I have to obey what the government tells me. So I guess we have to sit outside. I better comply. Or or people have said, well, the government did say that we can't sing at church. We can't even go to church. So, well, Romans 13, we, we just better comply. I guess we'll just go to church online and we'll take virtual communion. Not sure how you do that, but we'll do that. And we'll have virtual baptism and we'll have virtual fellowship, which means we're virtually alone. See, if you're new here this morning, this is not a hobby horse. This is not something that I'm trying to get up on and, and platform. By God's providence, you're, you're visiting us this morning in a time where we take Scripture verse by verse. And here we are in this passage of Scripture, and I'm not going to skip it because it's unpopular or because culturally this is a hot topic, and well, let's just skate around that for comfort's sake. No, we go verse by verse through the Scripture, and here we are in a tough text. In fact, this text is used by many Christians to say we must blindly obey everything the government tells us to do, to love our neighbor. And I want to challenge that paradigm through the scripture today. Owen Strahan argues against that mindset. He tweeted this. He said, if Christians think we must do whatever government says and that such unquestioned conformity best demonstrates love of neighbor, we're not in danger from tyrants. We've already willingly placed ourselves at their feet of free people owned by God have become political captives. If you are starting to get uncomfortable in your seat, I want to challenge us through the scriptures. In fact, just saying the word government in a family gathering, just bring up government. I challenge you, we've just gotten through a lot of our holidays, but I challenge you at the next holiday, just bring up government and see what happens in people's reactions. It brings, it invokes a variety of enthusiasm, doesn't it? Some people are frustrated with the government. Uh, Others love every law, mandate, and tweet that comes from the White House. Regardless of what your affections lie for government, what we're going to see today from Romans 13 
is that a Christian anarchist is a contradiction in terms. What is worse than bad government? No government. If you don't agree with me, just consider the novel that many of us read in high school uh, by William Golding. It was a novel called The Lord of the Flies. And, and you guys remember that book? In that book, it depicts a group of British boys who have been stranded on ostensibly a tropical island. And they, in that book, he highlights the disastrous consequences that can occur when society, even a society on an island of young boys, allow anarchy to reign. So for example, throughout the story, the boys are terrified that there's this beast on the island. And so in their fear, a group of them kill a character named Simon, who's trying to warn them that the beast is not actually a beast, it's a, it's a paratrooper who landed and is injured and is hurt. And yet, as, they, as he runs to tell them, they're terrified he's the beast, and so they murder him out of fear. But see, earlier in the story, ironically, Simon had said, maybe there is a beast, maybe it's inside of us, maybe it's us. Speaking of the intrinsic evil that lies within the human heart. And so I want to begin today by making the point as we open the scripture that government is composed of people. And government, therefore, can and does get corrupted. But what we're going to see in our text today is what our posture should be as citizens of heaven who reside in a fallen community. And how fallen government is not to be completely cast off off by us as believers, as if we're now anarchists, because government itself does fall under the sovereignty of God, as we'll see. We're not to overthrow, ignore the government. We're to actually submit to it as an agent of good ordained by God himself. So now that everyone's offended, uh, we are going to look at uh, a text that is vitally important for us. And I've been excited to teach this text and challenge the idea of complete obedience to government as well as complete anarchy. And I think by the end of our time together, we'll have a proper understanding of these things, not just from this text, but we're going to look at some other texts in the New Testament as well. By the way, disclaimer, this is not uh, an exhaustive study of God and government. This is a shallow dive, not a deep dive. So if you have caveats or questions or additional things you want to bring up, just text Pastor Micah uh, and uh, he'll, he'll answer those questions. So we're studying Romans. We come to the 13th chapter. And if we look in context at the rest of this section, the entire section, we're, remember, we're looking at how our lives as Christians have been shaped by God's grace. If we rewind to Romans 12.1, you can look at it later, but we're reminded that in, in view of these mercies, of the mercies of the gospel from Romans 1 to the end of 11, then now this is what our lives are to look like. And it happens in concentric circles. It begins with our own walk with Christ and then how we affect the church community, the other members of Christ's church. And then now we're going to see it actually goes out into another circle, which is how we live in the community that God has placed us in. In fact, we left off before we studied Luke, we left off in Romans 12, 21 with these words, do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. I want to draw your attention to those words, good and evil. We aren't to be overcome by evil. We're called to overcome it by doing good. And, and there in that, those verses, Paul says, we're not to seek vengeance, but we're to trust that God's wrath, God's wrath will do the job. We're actually called to be kind to even our enemies. And following the same train of thought, Paul zooms now out of the church to the broader community 
and shows us how government is actually ordained by God to restrain evil and to promote good. That's the purpose of government. It's to actually restrain evil and promote good. Now, in these seven verses we're going to study today, we're going to learn three important concepts, and then we're going to look at other scripture to add two more. So we have five points today. Three are from this text. So we're going to first look at how all authority, number one, is instituted by God, verse one. We're going to see how authority exists to rule out evil by representing good. And we're going to see, number three, how authority is to be respected and submitted to. So that, those are the first three points from this text. Then we'll add two more from some other scripture. You guys ready? No, you're not ready. Okay, well, we're going there anyway. Look at verse one. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Now, we're going to look at three Greek words in this verse. If you have a pen, I'd love for you to circle in verse 1 the word authorities or authority, same word. Uh, That's the first set of words I want you to circle out of the three. Um, And this is the Greek word exousia, which means the ruling authority. It's an authority over a domain or over a sphere of influence. It often is pertaining to the religious, spiritual, or political sphere. And we'll come back to the idea of spheres a little bit later. But note that this word, exousia, is often used to refer to spiritual powers. That's not the context that Paul is using here, but I just wanted you to know that. So in the case he's speaking about here, the government's jurisdiction is what we are supposed to submit to. Okay, and that's the second word I want to emphasize, where Paul says, let every person be subject. You guys see that? Let every person be subject. Circle those two words. And this is one Greek word. The word is hupotasso, and it means to be submissive or to subordinate under. The root word is the same word used in Luke chapter 2, where we, we finished before we got to that point in Luke for our Advent series, but if we were to keep reading, we would have read about Jesus submitting to, hupotasso, his parents when he was 12. Uh, it's also used in Ephesians 5, where it describes believers submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ and wives submitting to their husbands. So it means to subordinate under authority. And note that there's no authority except from God. And, the, and Paul says those who exist have been, quote, instituted he says, by God. And and I want you to circle that word as well, institute, instituted. That is the word tasso. You saw the word hupotasso. And tasso means to be assigned or to be placed. And the idea is that this person was brought into the room and sat in their place. Remember in first grade, you walked in and your teacher had assigned your seat and it was by name and you walked in and maybe there was a little apple or something. There's my name. It's spelled for me incorrectly because my name's Pilgrim and my teacher always got it wrong. And so I come in and sit down, but there's my seat. I've been, I've been seated here. I didn't pick that seat. I was placed there. That's the word. So authority has been put into place or put into assignment by God himself. Now, when you hear that, you go, oh, that's troubling. That means every authority God is happy about. Well, don't misunderstand this. John Stock clears this up because this can be confusing. John Stott says he cannot be taken to mean that all the Caligulas, the Herods, the Neros, the Domitians of the New Testament times, and all the Hitlers, Stalins, Amins, and Saddams of our times 
were personally appointed by God, that God is responsible for their behavior, or that their authority is, no, is in no circumstances to be resisted. Paul means rather that all human authority is derived from God's authority. So that we can say to rulers what Jesus said to Pilate, you would have no authority, no power, exousia, over me if it were not given to you from above. He says Pilate misused his authority to condemn Jesus. Nevertheless, the authority he used to do this had been delegated to him by God. You guys see the difference? So why are we to subject ourselves, subordinate ourselves to these rulers? Why? Because their authority was derived from God's authority. In fact, all authority is derived from God's authority. So why as a wife should you submit to your husband? Not because he is perfect and odor-free, because chances are he's a sinner, which we know he is, and it's not easy to submit to another sinner. Why are you to do that? Well, because it's fitting in the Lord, because you're doing it as though you're submitting to Christ himself. Why should we not just work hard when the boss is watching us, but also when they're not watching us? Why? Well, because we're not doing this like Colossians 3 says or 4. We're not doing this for eye service as man pleasers. We're doing it with sincerity of heart because we're under Christ's authority. Like we have a boss, but Christ is the ultimate Lord. Why should children who are in their parents' home obey their parents? Because they are entrusting themselves not to mom or dad, but to God who has established parental authority. So ordered government is not a human device alone. It's actually a divine one. And no, that doesn't mean that rulers or uh, leaders are divine themselves, but they've been sat in their seat by God. Remember, Daniel 2 tells us that God is the one who changes times and eras. God removes kings. God brings kings to power. And God's the one who gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have good judgment. David Gusick says it this way. He says, God appoints a nation's leaders, but not always to bless the people. Sometimes it is to judge the people or to ripen the nation for judgment. Wow. Okay, so why do these authorities exist? That's our second point. Number two, authority exists to rule out evil by representing good. And I want to make this case from the scripture. Look at verse two. He says, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. We'll come back to what that means in a minute. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. All right, now I just want to draw your attention to verse 2. Verse 2 has been misused by tyrants for the last 2,000 years to manipulate believers into supporting totalitarianism and even injustice like apartheid. So what do we do with verse 2? Well, we're to respect the state and we're not to make ourselves the final arbiters. So if we seek, Paul says, if we seek to resist the government's jurisdiction, then we can sit back expecting judgment. In fact, in verses 3 and 4, Paul is arguing ontologically that authority exists to honor God by representing good and opposing evil. So the ruler, whether it's the governor, it's a local 
uh, official, it's the president, it's the queen. That ruler is God's servant. They're put in that place for the community's good. That's why they exist. The governing authorities may not believe that they're serving God himself, but here Paul calls them God's servants or God's ministers. So if we as citizens do good, not evil, then we should not expect judgment from the state. That's his argument here. Christopher Ashe says, rulers do not derive their legitimacy from the people, though we would say, well, that's the kind of government we have, democracy. They don't derive their legitimacy from their heredity, from wealth, or sheer force of power, but their authority is a moral authority derived from God. Now, it's been said that magistrates are no terror to an honest man. So if you're driving and you see blue and red in your rearview mirror, your blood pressure will go up no matter what. But if you know that you're willingly committing a crime at the moment, maybe it's as small of a crime as the mistake of not updating your license plate to the current year. Whoops, I didn't register and update the year. There's police lights behind me. Then naturally your blood pressure is going to go much higher. Uh, And so Paul is speaking to the cynic who says, you can't trust anyone in the government. You can't trust the police. You can't trust uh, even the college professor. You can't trust the politician. They're all corrupt. And, and, And you look at Paul's life and you say, well, he was beaten by Roman officials in Philippi. So why doesn't he bring that up? But see, uh, the, the politicians, so to speak, the officials in Philippi had been led astray by the mob of people. And when they realized that they had made a mistake, they sought to make it right with Paul. You would say, well, what about Pilate? We just mentioned Pilate. Pilate did preside over Jesus's crucifixion, but he, for moment after moment, had tried to resist or refuse. And finally, he selfishly gave in to the Jewish religious leaders' demands. And so Paul is writing this at a time when the Roman Empire was the authority. And this certainly, Rome certainly was far from ideal. But his perspective, the the perspective he's presenting here is to show God raises up authority in order to represent good as well as to restrain evil, to oppose evil. And I told you we're going to come back to this idea of the sword. But know with me, Paul says the ruler bears the sword. What does that mean? Well, today we don't, at least in America, we don't see politicians walking into the room with swords. We don't see policemen carrying swords, but they carry a badge and some sort of uh, means of, uh, of control, of power. And so that, that's the idea here. The idea of sword means justice and capital punishment. And Paul's saying this isn't empty. This isn't vain. If you transgress the law and you commit a crime that's vile enough, the state has the power to put you to death. And we learn in Romans 12, we're not to be vengeful. We're not to seek out our own wrath. We're to leave room for God's wrath. And and it's only a few verses later that Paul says sometimes the means of God's wrath is through rulers and authorities. So even just the threat of punishment that government has been given should be enough to dissuade evil. If you don't believe me, uh, here's a funny story. In Massachusetts, a man placed a life-size plywood and aluminum Crown Victoria. I think we have a picture of it. He he put that in his driveway. It's life-size, and it mimics a police car. And he did that in order to slow people down. They they were driving up to 50 miles an hour on this small uh, 25-mile-an-hour street. 
And he says, especially at night, because he puts some lights on it, especially at night, people all slow down. Why is that? When he takes the car away, they speed back up. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. It's the threat of getting in trouble that holds many people back uh, from evil. Hendrickson said, in these verses, Paul refutes the exclusively negative attitude towards civil authorities, as if they were always intent on doing evil, and as if one should be afraid of them. To be sure, the magistrates do punish, but under normal circumstances, those who receive punishment have only themselves to blame. Of course, there's that caveat, under normal circumstances, we do fight injustice with biblical justice, so certainly that's there. But look at our third concept, starting in verse 5. He says, therefore, so the result of this is that one must be, here's that word again, in subjection, hupotasso. But he adds an extra idea here. Not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God. Not only are they servants, but more specifically, they're ministers or deacons, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Paul says in verse 5 that we are to be in subjection to governing authorities. But the additional reason he adds here, did you catch it? It's not just to avoid God's wrath, but it's also for the sake of conscience. So as Christians, we participate in civil obedience, not merely to avoid trouble, but Paul argues because it's right. Leon Morris noted, if if Christians break the law, we may face the external wrath of God through the state. He says, yes, but we may also, if the state doesn't find out, we may also have the pain of conscience, which is the internal counterpart of God's wrath. Oof. So it's not just avoid getting caught by the state because that's a bad thing. It's also because of conscience. So that speaks to those more subtle laws we break, maybe speeding a little bit, maybe failing to pull the appropriate construction permit, maybe undervaluing your property or something along those lines. It's because of conscience that we say, no, I'm going to live as a good and proper citizen in this community. And so Paul gets very practical in verses 6 and 7, and he speaks about that one issue that all of us have to deal with that touches all of us, the good old taxes, taxes. Now, our human government would not be able to carry out her duties without tribute, without taxes. So as God's servant, we're not to avoid taxes, but he says we're to pay them. If we owe taxes, uh, we are to pay them, pay taxes to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed. Now, certainly, we use wisdom and we use the proper guidelines. We should be savvy with our taxes. We're not fraudulent, of course, but we follow the rules and there's allowances and there's there's ways that we can, by law, do things appropriately so that we're not fleeced unnecessarily. However, um, Barclay claims that at the time Paul was writing this, the people were getting fleeced, that there were three different taxes. There was the ground tax, a 10% tax on all grain. There was a 20% tax on all oil and wine. That's the first one, the ground tax. Then there was the income tax, and the income tax was 1% of your income. Actually, sounds great. (laughs) 1%. 
But then there was the poll tax. And this was paid from every man 14 to 65 and every woman 12 to 65. And this was a denarius a year. And so you were to, you were to continue, and that's just the, the, the main taxes. Uh, but notice verse 7. We're to pay what, what is owed, whether it's taxes, whether it's revenue. This may refer to income or profit, which was earned. We're to, we're to pay those things that are owed. If it's respect, if it's honor, we're to show respect and show honor where it's due. And we'll see next week in verse 8 where Paul says, Owe no one anything. And in fact, let no debt remain outstanding except to love one another. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Love is to govern, you could say, the church. So honor and respect is owed to the person who sits in God's servant seat. That doesn't mean we respect the person themselves, but we are to respect and honor the position that I have or that they have. The world may laugh and promote this new thing, let's go, Brandon. But as Christians, we're not to engage in filthy, dishonorable language. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, never mind. <laughs> See, there's a parallel verse to, the, to this text. It's found in 1 Peter 2. Listen to these words which echo Paul in Romans 13. Peter says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. We don't see a lot of that, but the government is supposed to, to show off benefactors. It's to, it's to lift up and applaud those who are good. And Peter says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And then he says, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and this is a tough one, honor the emperor. And so we are to give honor where honor is due. Uh, we're to pay those that we owe. We're to give uh, or pay our taxes appropriately. And we're to be in subjection to the authorities that God has given us. Now, I don't want this text to die the death of a thousand qualifiers, but there's a lot more to say about God and government. We've exposited this particular text. I wanted to make sure we spent time going through what Paul is arguing here. He doesn't really go back into it. He just moves along now into, the, uh, into what it looks like to love uh, the church community and to love others. And so we'll get into that next week. But I do want to add two more points to this text um, and look at some other scriptures in the New Testament. I want to spend a little more time on this fourth point. So if you're taking note, this is a very, maybe the most important one. And that is number four, authority is limited and it's finite. You see, we have a curious statement from Jesus in Matthew 22. Will you guys turn there with me? Matthew 22. What happened was some Pharisees had come to trap Jesus in his words and they brought some Herodians along. They all together asked Jesus, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or no? Is it not lawful? And it says in Matthew 22:18, but Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? So he's revealing their motives. They wanted to trap him. The way he would answer that, and one of the two ways he could answer that would put him into trouble. And so he says, show me the coin for the tax. They brought him a denarius, verse 20. Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. 
And then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Why did they marvel? Because Jesus did not say, don't pay Caesar anything. He didn't say that. D.A. Carson argues that this particular tax they're getting at is the poll tax. And and so uh, Carson says paying the poll tax was the most obvious sign of submitting yourself to Rome. And zealots were there in the first century claiming that the poll tax was a God-dishonoring badge of slavery for pagans. So if Jesus says, don't pay the poll tax, then the Herodians could nab him for tax evasion. Ah, see, he's teaching things contrary to Roman law. Well, neither did Jesus instruct them to worship Caesar, of course, over against God. Why are Jesus' words marvelous? They're marvelous because, listen, he places a limit to Caesar's jurisdiction. And he seems to draw a boundary where Caesar cannot exert authority. Owen Strand says that the church, I don't have the quote, but he says, the church is not ruled by Caesar, it's ruled by Christ. So by extension, Christ's words teach us that Caesar must do all it can not to encroach on the God-given spiritual jurisdiction of the truth, uh, church. He says, uh, Caesar did not shed his blood for believers, Christ did. So we talk about separation of church and state. Often we think, well, that's the state doing that. The state says, let's keep the church out of the state. No, that actually originated from the church. Let's keep the state out of the church. That's what we're arguing. And this concept is what the early 20th century Dutch theologian and actually prime minister, Abraham Kuyper, coined and defined as sphere sovereignty. We have to understand sphere sovereignty. I want to make sure we capture this. So what sphere sovereignty is, is is Kuyper is arguing from Genesis 1, that God created in society a number of different institutions or spheres. Um, And he goes a little bit more into detail, but I'm going to just point out three. He talks about the state, family, and ultimately the the community of people. So he, he mentions the church. So we start with Adam and Eve. We continue through Noah, Abraham, the people of Israel, the New Testament church, the people of God, the people of God. That's one sphere. And then we have the state, and that's another sphere. That role is, is set up in various places, like Romans 13, like Psalm 72. We see the king, but then also the family. So though we don't see the state in, explicitly in Genesis 1, we do see God setting Adam up to be the one who rules over the earth and subdues it. He's the ruler. He's the king of earth, you could say, the king, the king of Eden underneath the lordship of the triune God. And then we have the family set up with Adam and Eve. So in the Bible, God gives each of these spheres a distinct task and role. And you can see on the screen that some would say all of those spheres are underneath the bigger sphere of the state. But what does the scripture say? The scripture would say, no, all of those spheres, even the state is under the sovereignty of Christ. Okay, we can take that slide down. So the sphere of state, um, I was trying to um, illustrate this to my daughter, London. She's a ninth grader, and I sometimes will like, she'll say, what's the sermon on this weekend, Dad? And I'll I'll say, okay, can I bring the cookies down to a ninth grade shelf? Because if I can, then hopefully we're, you know, we're on the right page. So I tried to describe it to her as bubbles, uh, spheres or bubbles. I said, so so in in the state bubble, the state is sovereign in matters that are properly within its jurisdiction. And that is under the sovereignty of God, as we just read. 
And that, those matters include criminal law. They include national defense, maintaining a fair and impartial justice system, and using taxes to provide infrastructure like bridges and roads. That's the sphere of state. Within the sphere of family lies the responsibility for issues like child education, discipline. We would say within the family there's religious instruction. There are sexual ethics and moral development, just to name a few, much more than that. And then we have the church. And, of course, the sphere of the church is sovereign over its areas of jurisdiction, theology, doctrine, church discipline, and membership in Christ's church. So I told my daughter, the problem with these spheres occurs when one bubble reaches into another bubble and exerts its authority in the wrong place. You guys follow me? Let me give you some examples. As a dad, you as a Christian dad, you do not have the authority to baptize your son and declare him a member of Christ's church and say, you're now a member of the church and start serving him communion without the leaders of the church hearing his testimony and saying, you're a part of Christ's church. Now, it doesn't mean you can't baptize your son, but you would want to make sure I'm confirming with the elders that he is a believer. Nor can you withhold communion from another member in the church. Hey, you're not allowed to come in today and take communion. You don't have that authority as a dad. That authority has been given to the church, the elders. Likewise, the elders of the church do not have the authority to carve through people's properties and start paving roads. As much as uh, our elders here would love Lena Road to be connected to 64, we would love for that to be, in fact, yeah, that would be amazing. But that's outside of our jurisdiction, right? That's outside of our bubble. And listen, for the state to mandate what a church can or cannot teach in their gatherings, or when or when they cannot meet, that's violating their authority. You see, the authority God's given each one of us is a stewardship, and we're called to represent God. We're his servants. We're his ministers. We're supposed to, we're supposed to represent him in and through our sphere of authority. So listen, pastor elders, we are called to be prophets and priests who reflect the grace and truth of God in our care for Christ's bride by feeding, caring for, and protecting the sheep. Sadly, many church leaders have corrupted that authority, and they have domineered, or they've allowed pragmatism to uh, control their leadership. And that's sad, and that's wrong. That's a misrepresent. That's a marred misrepresentation of their authority. Fathers and mothers, we're we're called to discipline our children. What in the fear of the Lord? Now, I've said this recently, not in the fear of dad, but in the fear of the Lord. We're to train them up in the way they should go. But sadly, many parents, parents will end up oppressing their children, manipulating their children, or what we see today, they just withdraw from their children. And civic government, as crazy as it sounds, is actually called by Scripture to be an instrument of righteousness and justice and to reflect Christ's kingdom of light and truth. But sadly... Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts what? Absolutely. And that brings us to our fifth and maybe most timely point. Number five, authority that dishonors God's law is to be resisted. We call this civil protest or civil disobedience. And scripture records this often. For example, you can jot these verses down. The Hebrew midwives, they were commanded by the state, by Pharaoh, to kill the newborn boys. 
Thankfully, they refused to do this. Exodus 1.17 says, they feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the male children live. This is honoring to God because this decree, this command went against it, violated God's nature and God's commands. King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, we know this from Daniel. He commanded all of his subjects to bow down and worship his golden image. And the three Hebrew young men refused to comply even at threat of death. We also know from Daniel that King Darius issues a decree that you're not to pray to any God or man except to Darius. What did Daniel do? Well, Daniel defied this ridiculous injunction and went into his room and prayed, and it cost him possibly his life. He was thrown into the lion's den, and of course, God closed the mouths of the lions. So that's the Old Testament. In the New Testament, and there's many more cases of this, but in the New Testament, we see the apostles brought in and interrogated after Jesus' resurrection and ascension for evangelizing. And in Acts 5, it says, when they brought them, they set them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you. So we didn't just charge you. We strictly charged you. <laughs> that's, that's a next level charge. We strictly charged you not to teach in his name. Yet here you fill Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us, which it was. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than man. As Christians, we affirm sola scriptura, scripture alone. That means scripture alone is not the only authority. There's other authorities, but it's the highest authority. When other authorities attempt to supplant, to override, to dishonor God's word, then our reflex response needs to be what Peter and the apostles responded. We must obey God rather than man. So as we apply these, uh, this text and these truths, we have a quandary, don't we? We have a quandary that at the same time, I am a citizen of heaven, but I also have a license or a passport or a green card. So I'm a citizen of America, or if you're a citizen watching online, listening online, we do have some people from Ireland and around the world that listen to our podcast. You're a citizen of a country, but you're a dual citizen, aren't you? So how do we live as dual citizens of heaven and earth with this in mind? Well, again, this is not an exhaustive list, but here's four ways that we can answer that question. If you're taking note, four ways to apply this. Number one, we pray. We pray for our governing authorities. Paul told Timothy, first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Paul tells Timothy, one of the pastors of the church in Ephesus, to make it a priority in your church gathering, to pray for kings, to pray for those who rank at various levels of civic leadership. In fact, the Book of Common Prayer actually asks British citizens to pray for their monarch. And it says this, it prays that God will, quote, so rule the heart of thy chosen servant Elizabeth, our queen and governor, that she, knowing whose minister she is, may above all things seek thy honor and glory. It's a great prayer. May we do the same for our local state and federal leaders. As Christians, we must pray for them to govern wisely, biblically, and justly. We don't just pray against them. We pray for them, no matter who's in office. We pray for our leaders to represent the Lord in their leadership, 
And sometimes, often that means praying for their salvation, for repentance and faith in Christ. But Paul tells Timothy, we should also thank God for our leaders, that we may live a peaceful, quiet, godly, dignified life as citizens. So we don't seek to have governments overthrown and then let, just let the people figure it out in anarchy. No, governments are servants of God. Even when they're bad, we're thankful that bad government is better than no government. It's better than total anarchy. So we pray for our leaders. Secondly, we support and submit, but we also stand against if necessary. I want to start with those first two. We support and we submit. And some people say the church should never mention politics. Just, hey, just keep your faith private in the private sector. Live your quiet lives and stay in your own sphere. But see, the word politics has the word polis in it, which means city or citizens. And biblically, we're to seek the good of the cities in which we live, in which we dwell. But even as we live in this tension of the, of the already but the not yet, there's no such thing as a Christian being apolitical. There really isn't. But the truth is, wherever there's people, as we started today, there's, there's always opportunity for corruption, there's opportunity for wickedness, and there will be injustice. So though the, though the pulpit is primarily the place for exposition, this is not the place where we endorse a political candidate or a political party. As believers, though, we still need to review the policies that candidates promote and candidates espouse. So it sounds spiritual. I, I do have some friends who say this. It sounds spiritual, maybe a little pretentious to say, church, our church isn't political. But maybe what that really means is, well, our church isn't bold to stand against unpopular policies that run counter to God's word. You see, politics are made up of policies, and we're called to honor the position that the emperor, the governor, or the president holds. And would it be wonderful to see Bible-submitted believers at every level of government? And many times there are. That's a wonderful thing. And that's a faint glimpse of Christ's consummate kingdom. But the reality is, gang, the fallen human heart cannot be legislated to obey and submit to God's law. Until the rule, reign, and realm of Christ is fully realized, we'll never have a truly Christian city. We're always going to be frustrated with politics. So the solution is for us to pray, pray for our officials, honor their position, pray for God-honoring policies, and sub, um, support and submit to them as unto the Lord. Okay? Everyone clear on that? But if and when those policies run against Scripture, we must defy and resist them. And uh, let me give you some examples. When the government legislates the murder of the unborn, we, stand, we must stand in defiance, not deference. When the government decrees that it's illegal to teach a biblical view of marriage or to share the gospel with the homosexual so they'll repent, like the Canadian government just passed, it goes into effect this Saturday, January 8th, the C4 bill. I have friends in Canada who will now be literally breaking the law if they get up and read Romans 1, 2, and 3. We must obey God rather than man. Uh, there's a, there's, by the way, there's a, a um, united group of churches who are taking a stand for biblical morality and sexual ethic, and our elders have signed a statement saying, we stand for what the Bible says on this. In January 16th, churches around North America and the world are going to be preaching on sexuality from the biblical perspective, and we're going to do that as well. 
So two weeks, we're going to talk about sex from the Bible's perspective. So we support, we submit to the government, but there may come a time when we have to stand against. So when the government says you can pack out a casino, but you are not allowed to sing at church, you're not allowed to laugh at a comedy club. <laughs> that's, that's a little bit crazy. When they say you cannot sing at church with the gathering of people, we can easily see that doesn't pass the scriptural smell test. So sometimes we have to stand against. Then number three, this is important. We are to live under the lordship of Christ in every sphere of influence. There's a Latin phrase we use to describe living uh, our lives before the face of God. It's the phrase quorum Deo. We live our lives before the gaze of God, before the view of God, the face of God. Christ is Lord and Caesar is a salad. So our ultimate allegiance, though, is not to flag, it's to faith. It's to Christ. In fact, Scripture declares in Ephesians 1 that Jesus is seated far above all rule and authority, not only in the age that we live in, but in the age to come. In fact, he says that his name is elevated, elevated above every name that is named. And God the Father put all things under his feet. Abraham Kuyper says there's not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who's sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. So in our families, in the church, even in the state, Christ is supreme. So we, as Christians, what do we do? We submit to each of these authorities. We follow the example of Christ who submitted to the Father. And we ultimately live under his lordship. Finally, number four, we look to the city which is to come. You see, our citizenship is ultimately in heaven. So we're refugees. We're merely occupying this place until we settle into our eternal country. The writer of Hebrews said it this way, they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for us a city. We get glimpses of this, of this age to come, of this, of this homeland sometimes. But one day, isn't this wonderful, friends, that our faith will be sight. And what we see faintly in this not yet will become reality. And until then, we fix our eyes on what is above, on the new heavens and the new earth. I'm encouraged when I read texts like Romans chapter 13 that encourage me to be a faithful participant in what the Lord is doing in my community. And not to shrink back and to hide off in a monastic community, but no, to be engaged, to be involved. But to not make this my home. This is like a hotel room. We don't make a hotel room or an Airbnb home. It's just a, it's a stop-off point for our true home, and, and that's heaven. So as we close, we're going to transition into a time of reflection. We're going to consider the cross of Christ who died for our justification who rose again for our glorification. In a moment, our ushers during the song are going to come. And uh, once a month, we receive communion. They're going to distribute the, the communion cups, which hold the bread and the juice. And we're asking only believers to participate in this. So if you've never acknowledged your sin, repented, trusted Christ, and been baptized, then we ask you to just let the, the plate pass by you. We're going to sing. We're going to consider the cross and then I'll lead us in a time of confession and prayer and then communion. 
as Christians, as we conclude this sermon, we acknowledge Christ's lordship, not just over our lives, but over all creation. Jesus is the king of kings. He's the humble king. He's the humble king who laid down his life even as the Roman sword put him to death on a criminal's cross. May we see his victory even in the light and through the light of his terrible suffering on our behalf as we consider these things and in a moment receive communion. Let's bow our heads together and let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us clarity on this very confusing topic. Many Christians are divided on this. We've scratched our heads and we don't know how to respond to these decrees, these mandates. Many of them have been wise and judicious and good. Uh, They have been helpful in much of the environment we've lived in. And there has been a source of good. But Lord, some of them have been evil. They've not resisted evil. They've actually gone against your scripture, against your word, uh, and reached into the sphere of church. And so, Lord, we're praying for great discernment, for great wisdom on how we can respond. We can pray, and we do pray for our leaders. Lord, we can submit to and support our governing officials and any authority that you've given us. But, Lord, as we consider these things, we also look to the King of Kings who came and submitted himself to Mary and Joseph, who took on our flesh, who lived not only in fulfillment to, but in complete obedience to your law, who died in our place and who rose again for our glorification. We thank you, Jesus, for taking our place. And as we consider the power of the cross this morning, it it just baffles us that the king of all kings, who at his name every knee will bow and tongue confess, that he would be willing to come and die for us, sinners, those who have rejected him and yet you've received us you died for us. So Lord, we thank you for these things. We consider the cross and we're so grateful. We're so humbled. Lord, we sing together with joy as we consider these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 1030 a.m. at the port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.